forget you, Barbara. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Groovy. We all go a little mad sometimes. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why are you shut up? I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. Hold on! He's alive! He's alive! He's alive! Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Garvin's Death vs. the Forces of Evil. Each week we'll delve into another dark corner of horror to select a genre, subject or topic to dissect and submit an entry to a guest judge in an attempt to win their love, acceptance and more importantly a point that will total up throughout the season. One of us will sit triumphant on a throne of terror at the end and some smugness, whilst the other will take on a truly evil task. So let's get the show on the darkly lit, mostly deserted road. I'm the titular Steph, and joining me through the wonders of modern technology is my twin of evil, Gav. Hello. So Gav, here we are. First episode finally upon us. So make some sense of us to get to know you a little bit better. Why Aura? Well, my first experience of horror was uh, through my grandfather not really paying much attention to a pile of books he bought from the local pub. And I I must have only been seven or eight and handed me, uh, I can't remember if it it might have been a pan or an Asbun collection of horror short stories. And the first one that sticks in my head is about the kid who was told not to go in his dad's shed. So he went in the shed and killed his brother with a pair of secateurs. And that kind of stuck in my head. And I thought, oh, I quite like these stories. And then my, <laughs> and then my grandfather would go out and buy absolutely uh, inappropriate books, reading Stephen King at 10. And it was only really kind of a bit later that I got into films because I never really liked the idea of somebody doing the imagination for me. So I was reading James Herbert and Clive Barker and Sean Hudson, but I wasn't really watching films. And then a friend of mine in uni said, well, you need to watch this. And we watched The Exorcist and we watched uh, American Werewolf in London and Wicker Man in one evening. And I was at the thought, no, I, I can do this as well. It's not just fiction. And now I can describe myself as uh, horror adjacent. I, I don't watch lots of out and out horror, but I watch Buffy and I watch X-Files and lots of older horror films. And... Uh, as will become a theme through this pod, I don't really do go, and apparently you do, Steph. So uh, we'll be having these fall-ins out occasionally. Yeah, I think that's going to come up later on. <laughs> yeah. A little. The conversation we had about go. Uh, well, my aura love goes a long way back, and back to, uh, dare I say, incompetent, but incompetent grandparenting as well. Because I've got, um, I've got two older brothers who would watch things that I shouldn't have been watching. And I would regularly sneak into a bedroom or a living room and, and watch whatever they were watching with them and whatever you could get from the back of an old video van that used to drive around the village. Like blockbusters on wheels is that's overselling it a little bit. But uh, it was my nan that really got me into horror and it was how we bonded. We watched things that I still shouldn't have been watching at that age and stay up until times that I shouldn't have been staying up till and watching all sorts of horror together. So And now my son has become completely obsessed with horror. And so it's been passed on to the next generation for me because now that that's how we bond a lot of the time as well. So uh, yeah, it's being being passed on. But enough about us two, Gav. We've got our first special guest judge for the night. Do you want to do the honours? Certainly. Our first guest 
is the wonderful Ben Taylorson. He's a man of many, many, many skills. Firstly, he's one of the nicest people on Twitter, which is, isn't always a nice place. Secondly, he's the host of the wonderful House of Hammer and Rated H Pods. But his greatest contribution to horror is probably Crisp Sandwich Friday, where an absolute inhuman mixture of fried eggs, barbecue sauce, white bread and hula hoops are often shared for the delectation of the wider internet. But Ben, clearly, you are a man of truly horrific tastes. But also, what's your first and personal experience of horror? Oh, thanks very much. First of all, I'd like to say I'm very hungry now after that description. Um, but, but thanks very much. It, it is, you know, my honour, absolute, you know, sincere honour to be the, the first guest that you've had. Um, Horror-wise, I'll echo a bit what Steph said, to be honest, my, with my parents and my grandparents. I remember very, very young watching um, The Thing from Another World on my, my grandma's black and white portable when I was, um, you know, probably four years old or something. And, and my, my, my parents, my parents were divorced when I was quite young, but independently, they both uh, sort of introduced me to horror. My, my dad would tape things that were on sort of late night on a Friday night and we'd watch them together on a Saturday. And my mum was very big into, um, we were members of the Britannia Video Club. Uh, so we'd, uh, we'd get, we'd go to whatever came out the month we'd get. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the stuff was was horror or thriller or sci-fi. So I think over the years as well, I've, I've come to appreciate horrors. The, the, along with comedy, it's the most subjective genre. So you get a lot of debate, you get a lot of chat. I like this. You, you're stupid for liking that. I this didn't scare me. That scared you. That kind of thing. And you know, I, I like being involved in that kind of thing. Um, but I think at the core of it, I just like being frightened. I like being thrilled. Um, I've seen a lot of films, lots and lots and lots of films, and it, it, I've got to the point where it, it 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 kind of takes quite a lot to 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 get me going, to get my adrenaline racing, and and horror is the genre that, that tends to do that these days um so yeah I, I i just have a complete love for the genre i'd probably say john carpenter is my favorite director so films like the fog the thing uh, halloween you know sort of uh, right at the i said the, the sort of my early years but to be honest i wasn't born for a couple of those but uh, there were certainly things i was introduced to far too young but yeah um i have a, a real deep love for the genre is there a particular uh, horror subgenre that you really don't do uh, I'm not a big one for sort of fantasy horror. So things where um, y- you can't tell, is it a dream or not? Is it, uh, you know, it, I, I've watched stuff recently. I watched uh, Puppet Master and things like sort of uh, ghoulies and that sort of C or D list sort of horror that, that is, I don't know how you would describe it, but I'm I'm not, I think like phantasm. Like I just can't, oh, I can't yeah. necessarily get away with that kind of thing because it's all just a bit stupid. But, you know, it, it has its place. A comedy horror as well, I find, can be really hit and miss. I, I could probably count on the fingers of both hands how many sort of comedy horrors I really enjoy. But when they're done well, they're absolutely fantastic. But for me, there just aren't that many that are done really well. No, it's difficult to get the tone right on something like that, isn't it? You know, I think films which are funny alongside the horror, the Dog Soldier is a good example for me. Yeah. You know, that, I wouldn't call that a comedy horror, but that's a good horror that has comedy in it. Yeah, absolutely. That I mean, you know, you, you think something like that, that Ghostbusters, High Spirits is another one I really enjoy, with, but not everyone does. Uh, but yeah, as you say, uh, Poltergeist is another one where the tone's all over the place, but it works kind of. Um, yeah, absolutely. Grabber is one of the best uh, comedy horrors I've seen, like true comedy horrors I've seen recently, which if you haven't seen is well worth a watch. It's all set on a little island just off island. And uh, there's this 
alien squid-like creature that lands on the beach. And they find out the only thing it's allergic to is alcohol. So the only way they can stay safe until the authorities get there is by staying drunk in the pub. And it's absolutely superb. It's a very good film, well worth a watch. Are you sure that wasn't a dream you just had, sir? <laughs> it's a dream I want to have. <laughs> so on to tonight's subject, uh, as this podcast comes kicking and screaming into the world, it's only fit in that our, our subject matter for tonight is uh, pregnancy and births in horror. So we've put our selections up on social media already for people to have a look at and make sure they've watched. But uh, what's your selection for tonight, Gav? I've selected Roman Plansky's Rosemary's Baby. A very, very good pick and a classic pick, obviously. I've gone for something a little bit newer. I went for a French horror inside, and we'll touch on the... your no, your. Uh, Dislike of goal later, Gaff, and we move on to inside. But do you want to kick us off with, with Rosemary's Baby and give us a little bit of what it's all about for anyone who doesn't know? Certainly. Uh, so, Rosemary's Baby is 1960s psychological horror directed by Roman Plansky. Uh, essentially, Rosemary and Guy, beautiful young couple, are looking for an apartment in New York and find a large Gothic building up on the Upper West Side. And it seems perfect. They're very strange neighbours. And as the film builds, it is, is there a case that these neighbours are strange or are they something slightly more sinister? I don't know why I'm hiding the actual nature of the plot, because when <laughs> I talk about the film, I'm going to make spoilers all over the place. But that's a large plot synopsis, uh, or very small plot synopsis, really. But uh, I think for me, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a bit more depth when I get into the sections it's a it's a great horror film with very little actual horror in it yeah and that's a strength for me seven originally the smallest apartment was a nine it had been broken up into four fives and sixes this room for instance it would make a lovely nursery oh it's a wonderful apartment I love let's have a baby Really? Congratulations. Minnie Castor has a herbarium. I'm going to have her make a daily drink for you. You're pregnant. Are you aware that the Hanford had rather an unpleasant reputation around the turn of the century? Awful things happen in every apartment house. Oh, 
So our format is we're going to break, break it up into four separate sections and we're going to talk about the central ideas and themes in the film. So I'm going to start with the first one, which I'm calling The Devil's Music. Now, for me, Rosemary's Baby, as a psychological horror, has to work in a different way. It can't necessarily be jump scares. There are no jump scares. There's no scares of any real kind. What it tries to do is unsettle you, and a big way for that for me is via sound and music. Starts with a lullaby that isn't a lullaby, a lullaby at all. If you're playing that to your kids, they are not settling, which uh, Mia Farrow herself sings. Yeah. And it never really sits still in terms of the music, and it doesn't really allow you to sit still either. When they first move into the apartment, there's weird chanting coming through the walls, you know, and I, I've lived in places like that, so I get that bit. But then there's also <laughs> some dodgy student flats over the years. But then certainly... <laughs> Sorry, just a bit of anti or cross valleys of boots there from last uh, day. <laughs> uh, you have a Beethoven's fur release regularly, and it just kind of hangs there. And you can't work out if it's diegetic or non diegetic. Is it in the soundtrack? Is it coming through the walls? And sound often works like that in the film. Also, the sound production itself is really effective. Some things are really quiet when you don't expect them to be. When she's out in the street in New York, traffic noise is either very loud or very quiet. Noises in the apartment can be very loud or very quiet. And it uses sound to unsettle you. The levels change. There's lots of just little angular sounds. And all the time, with her discomfort, you're feeling the discomfort yourself. And later on, he uses music really, really effectively twice for me. So the scene where Rosemary dreams, or does she not, does she, that she is attacked by the devil and sexually assaulted by the devil. There's really weird jazz. It's doing two very different things. The brass is doing one thing, but then the double bass is almost in an entirely different key and it never lets you settle, and you, you feel the horror, you feel the terror that she's feeling. And then the final scene, which I will talk about a bit more depth later on as well, there's really discordant horns again, saxophone, and nothing ever lets you sit still, nothing ever lets you think, oh, this is all right. And then when bits are more normal in the film, and she's listening to absolutely terrible smooth jazz on the record, even then, it feels slightly unsettling because it's almost like it's at odds and there's other sounds as well. Uh, and I, I think, think that's just jazz, though. <laughs> I, I always feel that whenever I hear jazz. <laughs> well, well, if you're not a jazz fan, it would be quite unsettling. <laughs> but And I think that's what it does really, really well. You know, And even when she's out in the street, uh, late about halfway through the film, when she's due to meet her friend, Hutch and she's waiting outside the Time Life building in New York and the street sound is just really angular and kind of slightly discordant and then it's normal and it never lets you think all oh, right everything's all right here so I'm, I'm wondering if you guys had any views on the sound and the music within the film yeah you, you mentioned that lullaby at the start it's almost sort of ethereal the, the sort of fear. I know that Polanski said that he, he tried to make you guess all the way through, like what was real and what isn't, and what's a dream. He always wanted there to be the chance that it isn't real. 
I think that sets it up really well. And that's the most disconcerting part. It starts straight off in that lullaby. And it is really sort of throws you off because it it should feel nice and it just feels dangerous almost. Like it's lulling into a false sense of security from the start. Yeah, and, and it comes up as a theme again later in the uh, in the film. And it just throws you every time. It's it's quite unpleasant. And it's deliberately so, I, I suppose. But, you know, I think that's very effective right from the off. Well, you talked as well about those sort of silences and the quiets. And I hadn't realised the first time I watched it. But there's times when he leaves and you've got that that false petition wall that they mentioned that's been built. So you can always hear mm-hmm. things happening in the other apartment anyway. But when he's clearly, for want of a better word, double crossing, when he's clearly doing the, the work with them, you can hear their doorbell ringing after he leaves. He leaves the apartment and you hear the little, I didn't notice that the first time I watched it. And I watched it again this week and I was like, oh, that's that's happened twice now. <laughs> and you sort of pick up on it. It's very clever the way it does use it. They say the audio all the way through it is superb. I think as well, the claustrophobia of that apartment building, and I'll talk a bit more about that in one of my other chapters, but the claustrophobia is almost kind of exacerbated by the the sound production as well. You just feel everything's right on top of you, all this noise, all this sound, the walls, everything. It, it's remarkably well done in terms of sound production. Ben? I think the, the, the skill that Polanski brings to the film is to immerse you in a horror film, as you say, that has no horror. And, and the sound is is one element of that. You feel like you're in that apartment. Um, and I, th- I think you can draw a comparison between this and, and, and The Exorcist with something you've alluded to before about the absence of sound. It's not always about what you hear. It's about what you don't hear. And, and those silences that allow you to create... Um, not scenarios for yourself, but they allow you to think about what's happening. Um, what I would say is going back to the opening, I hate that opening lullaby. Um, <laughs> I always imagine it being sung by the gremlins because I do all the Muppets. <laughs> it, it just, that's what I, every time I hear it, I thought that's what I, I, I hear. But again, though, I, I completely agree with um, what I think Steph said. It is, it's unsettling because it, it's not, it's not quite right, which I think, oh. I, I think, I think is what you said, Gav. It's not, it's not, it's not quite as it should be, it should it should be a calming, soothing lullaby, and it's it's the it's the um the waltz, isn't it? That's, that yeah. she's singing, um. But but yeah, it's um it's it's anything from that. But I, I find it almost comedically bad. Uh, but but no, the the I mean everything, without laying all my cards on the table, everything about this film, bar a couple of of things, um, make it kind of a masterpiece, and 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 the sound. Is is absolutely one of those that the, the you know the, the streets, the apartment, every element of it is so carefully, so carefully and and, and sort of chosen um, that it yeah it makes for a for a very watchable and listenable film. Absolutely, I suppose at the time as well that would be quite a surprise, given that that Polanski was a virtual unknown. Mia Farrow had sort of done some telly and was more famous for being married to Sinatra at the time. Castle, William Castle was behind it all. It was very much B-movies and schlock and, and not known for making sort of quality, lasting films. Yeah, it must have been a bit of a surprise when people watching this, this, this good. This is sort of for an inexperienced cast and crew. Uh, Polanski had done films in Europe prior to that. Yeah. Um, you know, but, 
But like you say, you know, William Castle, if you see William Castle's name and you think, oh, this is going to be schlocky, ridiculous, and ends up yeah. with a number of Academy Award nominations for acting and for technical categories. You know, it's a remarkable film in terms of that. But we've talked about, for me, what is the best part of it. I'm now going to talk about which is partially the best part and partially the worst part for me uh, in my second chapter, which I'm going to refer to, I'll be there for you. And you think, hang on a second, why is he called it that? Essentially, Guy, <laughs> Guy is Joe Tribbiani from Friends. <laughs> He's a New York actor who's struggling a bit, chances on a bit of luck, and lives in an apartment way beyond anything he should be able to afford. And, but that's the strength of the film as well, bizarrely, in that none of those characters, none of those actors feel like they are in a horror film. John Cassavetes is, is, you know, he's one of the great actors, he's a great expressionist actor, and he just feels slightly bemused all the way through the film. Everything he does is slightly bemused, slightly shifty, and he's like that in lots of other films as well. The films he did with Ben Gazzara, he's very shifty and very, you can't trust him, he's very difficult to pin down. And you get that all the way through the film, and even at the end, when she uncovers the satanic cabal and she walks in with a knife, his reaction is a bit like kind of, oh, am I going to have to deal with this again? And, and that's one of the strengths. <laughs> That, that this character, he's not a horror character. He, he's not a final girl type. He's not anything. He's not anything you see in any other horror film. He's this slightly ratty, shifty fella who really is doing something, not because he has any great belief in supernatural powers, but just because he wants to get some decent roles. And then you throw in the Cassavetes, or the, sorry, the Castavet, sorry, the neighbours, and many Castavets is the interfering mother from every 90s American sitcom. <laughs> uh, everybody loves Raymond, King of Queens, all those terrible things that used to be on Channel 4 about 9 o'clock in the morning during the summer holidays. That's what she is. She's our interfering mother. But she does it so very well. And Ruth Gordon, who played her, come from a, a stage background. And she just amps her up. The accent, the clothes, everything about her, you think, well, this woman can't be anything evil other than she's a bit of a busybody and she's shoving her nose in. But that's that's the strength of that acting. It's just really, really... And again, I keep saying this, but never let you settle on one idea. You're thinking, oh, I'm not sure about her. And my favourite bit in the entire film is a callback. So at the start, when uh, Guy and Rosemary first go into the Cassavet's apartment, Roman spills wine on the floor and she rubs at it because she's worried about the carpet. And then at the end, when Rosemary sees the baby, she drops a knife on the floor and Minnie reacts in exactly the same way. She picks a knife up and she rubs at the damage. And that's not something of a horror film. That is naturalistic, that just doesn't feel like horror, but it, it really kind of strengthens these characters for me. And Mia Farrow as well is absolutely superb in it. Absolutely superb throughout. It, she throws everything at that performance, absolutely everything at that performance. And 
I don't know how much physical change she went through, but it feels like a lot. Through that film, she seems, even if she hasn't lost weight, it feels like she has. It looks like she has. And there's so much in her performance, which, again, it's the silences. She doesn't say certain things. It's the little glances. It's the nervous little ticks she throws in. And it's just a superb performance. But she doesn't almost feel like she's with these other characters. You've got these sitcom characters, and then you've got this twitchy, byronic kind of heroine, like something like the Wuthering Heights almost by the end of it. And it's really, really fantastic performances, none of which feel like horror acting. She, she's superb. Uh, far better than you'd expect, far better than I remembered. Like uh, towards the end when she she lets out the scream and it's almost like Woodward in Wickerman, you know. Mm-hmm. He's so told, oh God, oh Jesus Christ! This that sort of same level of unsettling me. But bloody hell! You said as well about it, if physically, I, I don't know how much she changed, but psychologically on that film, when you you read what she went through and what Polanski put her through. So I said about Sonata. Sonata delivered the divorce papers, I think, on set. Yes. So she was midway through a divorce. Then he had her to eat raw liver, Polanski, not Sinatra. Had her to eat raw liver, even though she was a vegetarian. And then essentially pushed her out into New York traffic. And when you'll be fine, no one let a pregnant woman <laughs> film the, the only person willing to go with her to film her, although he promised that she'd be safe. So I don't know about physical, I think, but I think mentally that must have taken taken his toll. And yeah. that, as, as horrible as, you know, having your... You certain we should be neighbours trying to steal your baby. At least the guy just does it for a couple of parts. He throws his he throws his wife under the bus and lets her be assaulted by the devil in the hope of getting a film role. So I think when you look at who the actual sort of antagonist, the guy is the worst person, possibly not just a, possibly the worst person who's ever existed. I can't think of his absolutely horrific character to play. But he says the subtleties as well. When he first goes to meet them, and then he says, oh, I think I'm going to go back and we're just going to have a little chat because I found him quite interesting. And so the wheels are set in motion, but you don't really know. You don't realise exactly how important the subtleties in it are superb. He's a real, but like you say, Guy is a real villain of the piece, isn't he? Yeah. You know, Roman and Minnie are Satanists, but it's hard to say they're evil. They, you know, that's their religious beliefs, I suppose. Whereas for Guy, he doesn't care. He's got no dog in that yeah. fight. He just wants to be in better commercials, better plays. He, he should have a dog in that fight because he's married. Well, he's going to get married to one of him, and you know, it's his wife, and he's he's put a second to the the Satan worshippers and a part in a, a regular sitcom or something. I don't know what he exactly expects to get out of it, but. Unbelievable. Ben? Yeah, I mean, um, Minnie and Roman are just your grandparents who happen to be devil worshippers, aren't they? That's how it always comes across. They're nice enough. They've just got this unfortunate aside that they like to do. Um, Yeah, as for John Cassavetti, I mean, notoriously fell out with Roman Polanski halfway through. And I've discussed this film a few times over the years. And I've come to the conclusion that he sort of almost sort of half-assed the part, the part, but it almost worked better because he did it. Because he comes across as sort of disinterested, I think, as kind of as you've alluded to in in the whole thing. And and you know he's not bothered about the fact of it. But I honestly think as the film wears on, 
that there's almost some sort of method acting in that he's not kind of throwing his weight behind it but ironically it makes his character more effective and as for Mia Farrow as you say I mean she's just you're you're 100% convinced that you're watching Rosemary and um I mean physical transformation she's so thin at times in this film it's painful to watch in the best possible way because it's supposed to be painful to watch but I think that 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 decision to have a haircut when they in in the film by Vidal Sassoon um is is genius because it transitions you from healthy rosemary into oh my goodness me the haircut makes her look even thinner than than she was before and you know regardless of of how much um in those latter parts of the film that that Mia Farrow actually did lose we have no idea but she looks gaunt she looks skeletal she looks thin and it's 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 hard to watch for for as we said for a, for a horror film with no horror it it adds that real punch to this woman's suffering and you know she describes the pain in her stomach at one point as, as like a wire and because of the way she looks I, I can feel it as well um and that's you know that's entirely to her credit so yeah it's a, it's an incredibly well cast film I mean I, I'd also say Hutch as well what a likable friend he comes across as um as a character too which um you know all of those things make it yeah I, I think my only issue with Hutch is the the name is an anagram that kind of leads Rosemary down the, the thing. It just all feels a bit <laughs> obvious, a bit, I don't know, a, a bit too easy. In a film where nothing's easy, that's the one bit that's a bit too easy for me, That where she finds out who Roman Catherine actually is. But, you know, <laughs> that's a minor, minor wrinkle in, in what's a, a wonderful film. And... Uh, Sorry, the other sir. question, I suppose, is why on his deathbed he doesn't just tell the woman to relay the message. They're all bloody witches. They're all witches, <laughs> Rosemary. <laughs> no, I've done a little puzzle when you work it out. <laughs> yeah. I'm terrible at anagrams and Scrabble, so uh, if he was trying to tell me, I would have been none the wiser throughout. <laughs> it just happened again. Just go, oh, it seems obvious now. I should have worked that one out. <laughs> but it does lead me on to my next uh, part. And this is about, I suppose, the other major character in it for me. In a chapter I'm calling, we built this city on satanic ritual. Because New York is a character. New York is a, a significant character. Now, first time I went to New York, which was 16 years ago, maybe. A friend of mine lived in Brooklyn. But I decided I needed to make a pilgrimage to the Upper West Side, to the Dakota building, where they filmed the exteriors. And when I was outside, the doorman said, oh, Beatles fan, is it? I said, no, really, no, I'm uh, Rosemary's baby. I'm more into it. And the guy just kind of looked at me slightly uh, confused. But if you've ever been to that part uh, of New York, the building looks really, really unusual. It's kind of gothic. It sticks out. And that's what the film does very well. It makes New York look like something else, but it also makes the apartment look like something else. The apartment huge, obviously, and I, you know, those apartments go for millions of dollars now within the Dakota. But even the space feels like the walls are closing in. And there's a scene where they paint the walls and says there's more space. And you think, oh yeah, it does. And it feels more spacious. And then lighting changes. And where there's this big blank white space suddenly becomes slightly more angular. And that's what it does throughout. And then the corridors, they just seem narrower. Everything about it is closing the space down. And in a city like New York, where 
it is quite claustrophobic in itself. It adds other dimension from inside the apartment. But what I also really liked as well, you were aware of the changing seasons really, really subtly. You were aware of the, the seasons of New York and New York as a kind of living thing outside. There's a scene where it's all starting to get quite difficult. She's in lots of pain. She wants to change doctors. And the snow is just silently drifting down in the background. And you get the feeling of all this time passing and then... As she comes to the point where she's due to give birth, there's a sound of children playing. And New York is a living thing in the background. And sometimes it's not a particularly friendly thing. When she's out in the streets, like you say, crossing pregnant woman for all those yellow cabs and the sound of the cabs, it doesn't sound like cars. It sounds something else. It sounds bestial almost. And, that, and New York is always there in the corner. And New York the skyscrapers, all the things you expect to see when you go to New York. But New York feels like this other thing, just ever so slightly sinister, just sitting behind them as well. And I, and I think right from the start, it's quite interesting. So you have that terrifying lullaby and there's a helicopter shot over the city and it looks like New York. You can see Central Park and then it comes over the Dakota building and it doesn't feel like New York anymore. It feels like you could be in a Dracula film. It, could, it feels like you could be in Transylvania. And it does really well to get the sense of something other alongside the, one of the most recognisable cities in the world. And having kind of seen the building itself as well, it's, it's really difficult now to go to New York and not think sometimes when I, I look at buildings, I wonder what's happening there, because it's almost put in my head that New York, for all the wonders of it, has these hidden little corners which you don't expect, you know, horror films happen in castles, they happen in malls, they happen in other places, they don't happen in major cities. Especially this type of horror film, because essentially it's a folk horror. Yes. You've, got, you've got your witches, you've got your spells, you've got your dark forces. It's a folk horror set in like one of the most urban cities in the world. Like it is, and they say when it comes over, you, you've got you get that feel in New York, and then it zooms on the building. It's almost like that Carpathian castle that like you could have, have they say in Romania or in Eastern Europe. But it's very typical, you know, good for having been It's very hammer sort of the setup of that, the way that it looks, that sort of darkness amongst the city. It's, it's that thing again that he does of putting things at odds with each other. Yeah. And they do very good things, but then together it becomes very, very unsettling. The scene when Rosemary has a party as well, you, you see the beautiful young people of New York in the apartment and it feels normal for a second. It feels, oh, this feels normal, this feels right. These are the people they should be with. And then, like you say, you've got these characters out of a folk horror film. You know, it's the cast of Etz are the, uh, the regulars in The Slaughtered Lamb in uh, American Werewolf in London, aren't they? They're, they're these weird characters that don't seem to fit into the world that they sat in. Yeah, completely. Ben? Yeah, I mean, absolutely right. It brings, um, it, it brings horror to the place where there shouldn't be horror. Um, I mean, you're right. The apartment looks gothic. It looks like something out of a Hammer horror film. Um, but it's it's the fact that the majority of the film takes place in the day, as well, and yet you've still got that sense of foreboding, that sense of of horror, 
other films that do it really well. Um, I, I mentioned John Carpenter earlier. Uh, Halloween is another one. Mm-hmm. It brings the supernatural myth, the bogeyman, and it brings it to suburbia. And this brings, as you say, it brings folk horror to the middle of one of the biggest cities in the world. And it does it without skipping a beat. And, you know, as you've said, um, Gav, it, not only that, but the city itself is a character. It, it's a party to this. It allows this um, horror to be hidden in plain sight because everybody's busy, because everyone has lives, because everyone has assumptions about how people live their lives. And as I said earlier, it allows your grandparents to be devil worshippers that no one knows because, um, <laughs> you know, that's that's just what the the city hides, you know, with its noises and it's, you know, obviously we, 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 we can't smell it, but you get that kind of feeling through a, through a big city. And um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, it, it, I, I, bizarrely, I honestly think this film has a lot of comparisons to Ghostbusters as well, because that's another film that uses New York magnificently well. Mm-hmm. And the setup of, you know, something awful going on in an apartment building with a woman who's not believed about, you know, what's going on. Um, I, I think this is probably that was probably slightly deliberate as well in, in how that film was produced. And I, I, I hold those, bizarrely, those two films sort of together. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, the city is, is it's very, very important. Um, and, and, and the fact that uh, it's New York, you know, probably the most famous movie city, if you want to sort of go back through films that are based there, um, sort of adds just something else again to, to what we see. I think New York has a familiarity, even if you've never been there. The first time I went to New York, I was convinced I knew where I was kind of thing because everything felt, felt so familiar. I'd never been there before, but everything feels so familiar because you're so used to it in films. And Rosemary's Baby does that. It shows you bits that you would be familiar with, but then it's all these weird angles. And I, I've said that a lot about lots of the parts of it. Everything's quite angular. Everything is not slightly as you expect it to be, and that's its strength, I suppose. And my, my kind of final chapter on this is fairly simple, really. It's called He's Got His Father's Eyes, and the final 10 minutes of it are as good as horror gets for me. It's genuinely horrific. It's haunting. Rosemary has been dragged. She's been told that she's lost her child, but she can hear a child crying in the apartment building. She finds her way into the Castavet's apartment, which now looks very different. It's black. There's a bassinet covered in black netting. The pictures are back on the walls. Yes. Yeah. The, pic- the pictures have been removed. And... The other characters don't know how to play her. As we said, Guy Guy is really unsure what's going on. She's walked in with a knife. There's these weird tourists, satanic tourists who are there. And it's at the point when you realise genuinely how much this has been Roman pushing all of this at the end. When she looks at the baby, she's horrified. Something horrific about her. And she's what's wrong with his eyes. And Roman says he has his father's eyes. And then he talks about it as if he's talking about the most natural thing in the world. This is Adrian, the son of Satan. He will bring about the new world. And and it's jaw-dropping. Because Roman has just seemed slightly off, but nothing bad. And then all of a sudden, he has been pulling the strings all along. He is the one who's pulled Guy in. He's the one 
who brought Satan in to assault Rosemary. And you realise that Roman is getting what he wanted and has always wanted. And Terry, the character at the start who commits suicide, I'm assuming something slightly more sinister happens to her, he's taken one look at Rosemary and think, this is better. And it's... It's terrifying. It's terrifying to think this genial man is at the heart of this terrible conspiracy which might change the entire world. And then the final scene says, he needs a mother. He needs you to be the mother. And then that kicks in, the maternal instinct. And that's a point when everything changes because I always assumed the first time I saw it, and I first saw it probably sometimes in the mid-90s after I'd read the book, and even though I'd read the book, I was expecting the film to have a different ending. I was like, well, this can't end like this. And the forces of evil win, and they win in a really subtle way. And that's, again, just something about this film that leaves you unsettled. Because even in most horror films, you expect good to win out in one form or another. I watched the film uh, Hush recently. And you know, can die really, really perfectly because everyone, you know, the, the woman wins, everyone's happy. But this just ends on, it's not even downbeat. It's beyond downbeat. It's something else entirely. Because this isn't just a, a child. This is a child of Satan. And you're thinking, oh, my God, what happens beyond this? And, and that's why it's so good, because that's the only actual horror in nearly two hours and 20 minutes of a horror film. <laughs> and uh, it reminded me of Ring, uh, the Japanese version, not the uh, the American remake. Just by the way, it ramps up the tension, it ramps up the tension, and then at the end releases it with something horrific that just unsettles you. And both those films, after I watched them the first time, I couldn't sleep. And they had exactly the same effect on me. And that's its real strength, the fact that it builds up the tension, and when it does release it, it releases it so powerfully. Yeah, and it, you say it's not just sort of when we get to the end of a horror film, and it's even if it's a bad ending, it's, well, your protagonist hasn't made it out. But this kind of feels like, well, the world might not make it to the end of this now because like the, the son of the devil's... I mean, like, I wouldn't have called him Adrian. I don't think no. it's the scariest name in the world to have named, named the son of Satan. But uh, yeah, other than that, it's all, all pretty terrifying. And they say not just on a small scale like we, we tend to see with films. You know, I've a, you watch a slasher, you know that you know these seven to eight teenagers were in trouble. And this feels like this, this is the end of times. This is the end of the world. And they say it comes about so subtly and so easily. There is a, a genuinely terrifying ending. Ben? Yeah, I agree with you. As regards Adrian, it's like here's the son of the devil, Barry or Derek. It's not, it's, it's, it's not like it's yeah, but 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 if we gloss over that, there are two things that are commendable about the the, the, the sort of the final act. The first is this film convinces you that you've seen something that you haven't seen, and most horror films rely on convincing you that you haven't seen what you have seen. Whereas this, I reckon, if you polled an audience who walked out of the cinema. I reckon you'd 50% of them would be convinced they'd seen the devil's eyes. And you haven't. Mm-hmm. You just imagined it based on what she says, um, which is, you know, utterly brilliant. And the other thing is that the ending, it, 
somehow manages to manipulate the viewer into thinking that it's kind of a happy ending, you know, that it's, oh, well, at least she's looking after her kid. You know, maybe, maybe they're not all bad. These devil, these devil folk might be all right. You know, you come away with it thinking that because you think, well, she's got to have endured for something. There's got to be some levity. There's got to be some sort of bright point to this whole story. So you convince yourself that, well, maybe if she settles down, breastfeeds the devil's boy, might, might, everything might be all right. And uh, But we know, as you say, deep down that, no, <laughs> this is bad, really, really bad. Um, but yeah, it, it has that sort of conflicting. And it's the sort of the, the end is the, the ultimate epitome of the, this is a horror film with no horror. And yet it has perhaps the most horrific outcome possible. I only found out this week that there's a sequel, which I didn't know about until I started looking up some stuff for this, where that's pretty much the premise of he might, she might make a good boy out of him yet. And then the, yeah. twist at the end is, no, no, she doesn't. No, yeah. <laughs> no still the devil's in, as it turns out. No, it's terrible, though. It's, it's really... I, I know what, I don't know if I can. I, I, I get the feeling it would ruin this one for me. So I've tried to avoid it as best I possibly can. I read both the books kind of quite, quite quickly after each other. And the idea of, yeah, it's not worth watching. The books aren't great. Well, the second book's not great. Either. The first book is uh, is a bit of a pot boiler. It, it's strange. The, the book itself isn't particularly well written or anything. You know, it, it's a bit of a, a Pulp Fiction kind of thing. And then to turn that into a genuine masterpiece, as Ben said, you know, as as horror films go, I don't know if there's many that are better made. You know, can what Roman Polanski's questionable character aside, it's uh, you know, and, and that was the one bit I found quite uncomfortable when uh, guy says, "Well, I didn't want to miss baby night," and suggesting that he'd uh, had sex with when she was passed out. And you're thinking, yeah, knowing what I know about Roman Polanski as well, this all feels quite unpleasant. Yeah, I was going to say some of it hasn't aged particularly well and that's one of the major ones mm-hmm. where he, he explains it away of it was fine, it was just me and you know that's that's absolutely not fine. That is no. not acceptable. That is not an acceptable reason or excuse or explanation for what has happened. So there are some things that has aged quite badly on that front. I think Mia Farrow spoke about it as well and said that she didn't like Rosemary after a while because she felt she was a victim. She she never sort of stood up for herself. She was always always played the victim. I'm surprised you didn't mention in your chapters the scariest part of the whole thing, and that's that the neighbors just pop in whenever they feel like. I can't think of anything scarier. <laughs> just whenever they want, do they just knock the door and in they come? And that's that's terrifying in real life. I that that's the scariest part of it all for me. If my neighbors started doing that. I've lived here for four years and I genuinely only learned the names of both my sets of neighbours this summer. So the idea of my neighbours coming around all the time is not something that really uh, sits well with me. But I don't <laughs> think they're Satanists, so that's, it's all good. The bit that always gets me is when Rosemary finds herself, like Rosemary's, what, 20s, mid-20s? And she yeah. finds herself having to spend her days and evenings with uh, Minnie and her friends, sort of these two old hags, and they're like knitting, and you think, how she got herself trapped in this scenario? You know, she should be out with people of her own age, and yet, you know, that, that, I mean, genuinely, that bit kind of really got under my and it's supposed to as well. You're mm-hmm. supposed to feel frustrated for her, but Gordon Bennett, you just think, oh, no. 
I suppose now her husband's a rising young actor who's, who's suddenly making it on the scene and, and replacing you know, this big name. What the other thing I found out the the voice on the phone was Tony Curtis when she rings the bar. That had passed me by summer when I was looking this week to deliberately throw me a far off and never told her that it was going to be Tony Curtis so she would try and place the voice. But yeah, it her husband's now becoming this next big thing on the scene, and she's sat in the house with a. 80-year-old neighbours eating not chocolate mousse. Yes, chocolate mouse. That was another thing that I really liked as well about Ruth Golden's performance of chocolate <laughs> yes. mouse. But even when they're carrying out the satanic ritual, she says, well, the mouse means she won't feel anything. You know, I really... That, that was another thing about uh, Minnie that I really liked. This kind of, you get this feeling, well, she can't be evil. Listen to her. She sounds like someone's grand. Uh there was one bit that I, I love as well. It's a bit, sometimes the dialogue can be a little bit clunky, perhaps of his time, perhaps uh, a little bit more than anything. But when Terry, as it is suicide or, or murder, as it, it possibly uh, turns out to be, and she's she's dead and they're on there looking for, for Roman and Minnie, and he comes up and he says, has there been an accident? And the cop in his thick New York accent says, you better brace yourself for some bad news. She's dead. And he, <laughs> give her time to brace us. He doesn't even take a breath. It's just straight. Like, I don't think you should be delivering news. Quite that, especially as someone who he knows has been living with them and they treated as a daughter. It was so abrupt. <laughs> <So>, whoa. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I did like the um, the New York cop with absolutely zero empathy for anything. He did not care at all. They were, they'd spoiled his day, seemingly, with the suicide. The only the only criticism I've ever had of Rosemary's Baby is that it, it was edited down from four hours of footage apparently, and it's a, you know it's 130 minutes, but still two hours ten minutes. But it's one of the very few films that that comes in at over two hours that I just wish there'd been a little bit more. I just think there's a few scenes could have been fleshed out. I think Guy goes from being you know what what we feel is a at the, right at the beginning a you know a reasonably loving partner to obviously upsetting rosemary and making her feel dejected and alone and we don't really see any of that before we're just supposed to assume it and there's a few earlier hints um in the film about sort of roman and minnie and stuff that I, you know this is i don't i know i we honestly don't see this very often but i'd love to see a three-hour edit of this film um and i think that's probably my only criticism is that that despite the fact that it's over two hours i still felt feel at times that we jump a little bit from scene to scene with without um sort of the, the the narrative being as smooth as it could be but you know it's, it's a minor quibble yeah I, I agree there's not many films i could say i wish it was longer especially when it's not particularly short yeah but yeah I, I could definitely uh watch that for longer so judging by what we said and by my own feelings of rosemary baby rosemary's baby i know we my choice i'm already facing an uphill struggle <laughs> <laughs> And given that Gav said, I'm not particularly fond of gore, and I said, no, nor am I. And then my first pick is uh, from 2007, a French film called Inside.
brief synopsis. I'm going to keep my synopsis pretty brief because essentially it's a scissor-wielding psychopath terrorizes a pregnant woman on Christmas Eve. I don't think it needs any more explanation than that. I don't think you can give it any more explanation than that. Um, it's definitely something. I watched it um, not long after my first child was born. Um, and it's definitely not the kind of film you want to watch when you've just had a young child. <laughs> but I thoroughly loved it. So I'm going to kick off my first chapter is almost uh, in direct, uh, the direct opposite of yours. My first chapter is called The Sound of Silence. Because I think my favourite part of the start of this film, it starts off quite slow and relaxed. I know it starts with a car crash, but straight after the car crash, it starts off quite slow and quite, uh, it, it just trots along. There's not really a lot happening She's kind of gripped by the depression, having just lost her husband. But there's a really great scene when she's lying in bed, having just been checked on, where uh, Beatrice Dahl Lafemme enters the apartment. And there's a virtual silence as she's asleep and she's carefully walking around the apartment. She sterilizes the scissors. She's sort of getting everything prepared. And as she slowly drags a scissors, down the stomach of um, I've got a name of, of Alison Harvey Sarah, thank you yeah. of Sarah there's an incredible tension and not really knowing what's happening or why but that silence just heightens it incredibly now they use throughout the film that horrible eye-pitched screeching sound when I, which the first time they use it, it works quite well. And then for some reason, I think he had, he had bought the copyright to it already and so decided that he might as well use as much of it as he can because he definitely overuses that high-pitched squeal whenever someone <laughs> brands a scissors or a knitting needle or whatever else they can get their hands on at the time. But the, that moment of silence is absolutely terrifying to me, especially because I said we don't really know at this point what's happening we just know that that mysterious woman that we've already seen is in the apartment now. So for me, that was, that's one of the, just for heightening the tension and building that anticipation, that sound of silence is the big one for me. I think for me, it uses sound and light really interestingly. Yeah. Like you say, there's got that abstract noise, that kind of squealing synth sound that he uses a few times, and then he uses other bits of music really effectively. But in there's periods where there's no sound whatsoever, other than Sarah's breathing or the sound of footsteps. But light is really used interestingly as well, because it's never really directly lit. The first time you see La Femme is uh, just from the camera shots that uh, Sarah takes through the door. There's a bit where there's just phone light or the light of a cigarette, and, and he uses all of it. It's a collage. It's not really ever a clear picture, either sound-wise or visually, of what's actually happening. And I think that's one of the strengths in it. Because when it does show you what's happening, it does in absolute gory detail. And when, when you hear some things as well, which I think you said at one point you couldn't lock me with you the squelching, I think was your yeah. <laughs> it's me. I was thinking about it today, so I was like sort of mentally thinking about it. And my knees started to go a bit and I was thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll not 
think about that too much at the minute. Um, but yeah, you say about the light as well, that the flash when we've got the power cut and she's walking around with the flash from your camera, using that to light up the scene. I don't think I had seen it before this. I've seen it done a few times since and not as well. Yeah, and I think it's deliberate, isn't it? Because she's a photographer who's taking yeah. photos of these inner city riots and it's about her her job is to capture horror and that's what she's doing. You know, it's but this is different. This isn't something that's at arm's length for her. This is something that's directly in front of her. But I think as well with the sound, like you said, I made the mistake of having surround sound on when I was watching it on Saturday night. And I couldn't watch the cesarean section scene because there was just the sound of a snipping of the skin and it just felt so real. And and it's a film that forces you to see some horrific things, but forces you to hear even more horrific things. Yeah, well, I, at one point I went to watch it with earbuds, that earbuds in. And it was only after you'd said that, and I thought, yeah, I'm not really watching it with that. <laughs> that's, that's a really good, but I think that's a bit too uncomfortable when it's directly into my ears while I'm trying to watch that. Ben? Um, yeah, where to pick up on that um i've seen the 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 sort of the thing with the camera a few times in various of the films the most effective time i've seen it this makes me sound like i'm a real nerd but i haven't seen many uruguayan horror films but in a uruguayan film called uh, i think it's called la casa murder uh, the silent house um it's done really well because there's something coming towards her when she's taking pictures and the only thing that lights the room is her camera yeah it works pretty well in this though as well um I've seen a, a very recent film called Host, where they do something very similar as well. Um, yeah, uh, thinking about sound and, and light, though, particularly sound, um, one of the key words I'd put against the film is it's relentless. Um, and Absolutely. <laughs> but the thing about any horror film that's relentless, ironically, is that it has to give you room to breathe. And this film does. It, if, if it's just one continual set piece of awfulness or terror, you're just going to tune out. Everyone does. So it has to give you those moments of levity. Levity is such because there's no levity in this film whatsoever. But it has to give you those moments to recover. Um, and this film does that really well. So you get the calm moments where we're not really calm, but there's nothing happening as such, where you can compose yourself before we move on to the next horrific item. And it does that both with sound and in terms of what you see um, on the screen. Uh, I would say for the opening sort of 10, 15 minutes, I didn't know where this film was going. Um, I'd never seen this. Is the I, I watched it in preparation for for this recording. It's the only time I've ever seen it. I've seen other French horror films in the same guise. So I've seen Martyrs and I've seen Frontiers, which are very similar to this in 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 the awfulness that unfolds in front of your eyes. Um, but yeah, it's um, it, it it it's good though. It it builds and 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 something horrible happens, and then it gives you time to pull yourself together, and then something even more horrible happens, and then up we go up the ladder of awfulness. <laughs> But that relentless kind of buys it. A few things you say kind of buys it in the future. But my chapter next, I was going to call Scissor Sisters because <laughs> that relentlessness is obviously played out as well in the way that anything seemingly could become a weapon for one of them. Because we start off with the scissors that she takes with her, and we end up with knitting needles. We end up going through a broken mirror that she smashes to get to get the shard of of glass to try and cut her with. Where there's a gun in there because. Like the cops are like, I guess in that's what the Keystone cops were like in France, because they they're so like they they never make a right decision, even to the first point where they turn up and don't even notice that she's pregnant, as uh, she's not pregnant when they've got the wrong woman. 
then he, one of them decides that he's going to take uh, someone that he's got as a prisoner in the back of the car with him because he doesn't want to leave him on his own. So you take him into where both of your partners have just been shot and you heard the gunshots. So he just takes him with him. So they, they're horrific. So he got a gun in there. They even use a toaster at one point, which is the, the best use of a toaster for attack since I think Scrooged with uh, Bill Murray. <laughs> the bitch hit me with a toaster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly the same. And then obviously turning her, her uh, cigarettes that she smokes all the way through the film against her in the end with the, the spraying of the aerosol oh, straight at her. <laughs> the gab's gone at the mention of the aerosol. There. <laughs> There's literally nothing in this film that they couldn't have turned into a weapon. It was, and they say, it's that kind of relentlessness and how frantic it is. And you've got those, as I said, those, those beats in between where she's locking herself in, in the bathroom to try and think of a way out or get a way out. And then obviously other people bungling their way into the apartment and not realising what's going on. So there are those moments in between where you kind of, but for me, like I said, that, that relentlessness, that franticness, that it just keeps going and then buys in with these... It, it, imaginative array of of weapons um having grown up on a lot of, of horror films um watching the likes of, of freddy krueger with his hands and then jason and you know we've, we've got chainsaws we've got machetes we've got knives i think scissors will now go down in my mind, as one of the great horror <laughs> weapons that anyone could use. I'll, I watched that film and I don't think I could have cut anything open for about three weeks. I'm trying to make sure that everything's terrible because it, it, it genuinely quite traumatising the way she uses the scissors. But as Ben said, at, it, at first I didn't know where it was going. I didn't know where the film was going. And then the first real death is when Sarah stabs her own mother in the neck with a knitting needle. Yeah, and there's the arterial spray, and you know at that point I'm thinking Steph said this wasn't going to be that gory, and then about <laughs> ten seconds later there's a thirty second sequence of a man being stabbed in the groin with a pair of scissors, and it, and it kind of ramps up from there, and, and yeah it's utterly relentless. I wrote the word relentless down at least half a dozen times in my notes when I was watching it. It's. If she yeah. felt like the Terminator, Beatrice Dow felt like a really stylishly dressed, beautiful Terminator because she it seemed unstoppable. And until, and we might talk about this a bit later, but until there's a tiny bit of a reveal, it's motiveless, it feels. It feels utterly motiveless. Yeah. And I think that's really strong as well. Which is There's no um, backstory until that final bit, 10 minutes from the end. And that actually is a strength, the fact that there is no backstory. It's just this relentless killing machine that's willing to use anything to get what she wants. Well, around about the same time as well, I think um, Eel is a, uh, came out in France, so they or them, I can't remember mm, how it translates. Yeah, um, and that that's very much... The plot, and that's what makes that so terrifying at the end when she says, Why are you doing this? and she says, Because you're home, which was like, Whoa, <laughs> like it could happen to anyone. And it does feel like, and I, that's very much the first time I watched it, I thought it was going down the same route that she just is because she is, and she's just there because she's there. So that the twist that it takes at the end, which will take me on to my next chapter, uh, of just 
beautifully grotesque is what I call my chapter because I couldn't think of what else to call it. We've got all that level of gore, the pain, the anguish, the blood. And there's a lot of blood, to be fair. The eye-pitched squeals with every scissor stab. But at the heart of it, I think there's a genuine, real emotion. I think the problem that I've got with a lot of torture porn films or gore films is that's the only reason that they exist is to just be grotesque and just try and shock you and create, stir that emotion that way. When you find out why she's there and that it was her baby that died in the car crash and that she had lost the only thing that she wanted, I think it takes quite a spin and not to the point where you think, well, I can empathize with her and I'm glad that she's trying to cut that baby out, that woman. <laughs> But it kind of adds a layer in that you weren't really expecting. I think there's enough emotion and enough suspense to sort of justify the amount of gore that's in it. With a torture porn film, the, 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 the problem with those films is that they explicitly say these people are here to enjoy hurting other people. Yeah. This film, as you, uh, you, you've already referenced one example with Eel, but another one is Funny Games, the Scandinavian film. Yeah. With those films, they don't really ever say we're just here to sort of enjoy ourselves hurting you or making you miserable. But if you watch something like Hostel, it's you know the people that are there because they want to hurt people, and we know that it's part of the narrative. And they don't do that in this. And obviously, the, the twist is at the end there is a reason um, for it, and and that makes the difference. You know, and, and the other thing, going back to what you said about the, sort of the the gore and the aesthetic, is it's it's so it's so well shot. For what they're trying to achieve, you know, the the, the mise en scène, the the way in which the violence is is presented. I mean, it, it boils down as well to a fundamental sort of terror that we all have. She, she ends up locked in a room with no windows. Um, you know, she can't get out, and she's pregnant. You know, that's at the heart of the film. I, I would argue that one of the, the the slight downsides of this film is that we seem to conveniently forget she's pregnant for about twenty minutes when she's doing all kinds of things that a pregnant woman who was in literally in labour probably wouldn't do. But um, but she's trapped in in the whitest room of most people's houses as well. So if there's going to be a sort of artorial spray or whatever, we're going to see it in glorious technicolor against the tile work or whatever, and and that that works tremendously from that point of view as well. And obviously the clothes that she's wearing because she starts off wearing a white, I hope it's a white top or a white dress. But as the film goes on, just gets redder and redder with the blood of her and her mother and anyone else who happened to rock up at the house. Well. Well, they were doing that. You talked about the ending as well of Rosemary's Baby, where it's kind of the happy ending that isn't a happy ending. And I think they kind of tried to do the same thing with this because all the way through, what's become quite clear is since losing her husband, Sarah doesn't want the baby. And she's kind of, even when she's smoking next to her at the hospital and they say you should put that out and she says, don't care, don't worry about them. And she doesn't really care with anyone. Her mother tries to show she doesn't really want that baby. And that's what's sort of portrayed in little hints as you watch it. Now, the first time I watched it was not something I picked up on. And then the second time you watch it, you see how the depression is kind of thing that she doesn't want that child anymore. But obviously the only thing that Femme wants is that child. And she's willing to do whatever she can to find that happiness in the child that she wants. So it's kind of the same as Rosemary's Baby, but the exact opposite. In that it, it's, I, they kind of tried to play it at, 
well, the woman who wanted a baby's now got a baby, and the woman who didn't want a baby, well, she hasn't got a baby because she's dead. But in the same token, it's the most depressing ending. Well, actually, Martha's is the most depressing ending you brought up earlier because I watched that. I, I don't think I can ever watch a film again. I can't take that risk. But <laughs> it's, it's a really depressing ending. But it, it, it takes on that similar vein of they tried to blur the lines of what was good and what was bad because she sat in the rocking chair holding what's now her baby. That's all she's ever wanted. And I don't think they particularly pull it off as well as they would have hoped because somebody's just died. Well, a lot of people have just died for it. But I think very much they tried to blur that line to make that ambiguity there as well. It's the only ending that can happen, though, for me. Yeah, th- there is no happy ending for this film. There can't be. be just be the sheer nature of everything that's happened in it and the way it's ramped up and the way the narrative kind of... I, I don't even know if there's a structure. It's a free fall. It's just this plummet to... Absolute dark depths, and that ending, as bleak and grim as it is, is the only ending. If there'd been an ending where Sarah survived, I, I'm not sure how I would have felt about the film. Yeah, you know, I, I think it was so brilliantly done. And I'd seen Martyrs, and when I realised it was from the same kind of wave of French horror films, I was cursing you slightly. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but, but this has got something else about it that Martyrs doesn't have. Uh, the Martyrs is unremittingly grim for the sake of being unremittingly grim. But I think the film's trying to say something else as well. It, that it's you've got, got an sorry, humanity go about it. It's got a, a humanity to all the darkness and the depression and everything that it goes through, those the, the evilness almost of it, it has got an humanity at the, at the end of it. I, I think there's also the kind of societal comment as well that all these riots are happening, they're trying to make out this is something that affects immigrants, is something that affects people in the inner cities. But in reality, violence and the effects of violence affect everyone. And these mid, essentially very middle-class people are in the same place, are, are suffering the same issues and, and I think that's a strength of it as that's, well um, go ahead I was going to say the difference between this and Mart. no it's okay the difference between this and Martyrs and it's a wider point as well is that the viewer is given an out and I, I go on about this a lot um, in a well written film horror film particularly but disaster film and I'm a huge fan of disaster films there's another one is as a viewer you've got to be given an out to accept a character to die or to disappear and that has to be because they've been given a chance to leave and they haven't taken it or they've done something that deserves to die or that there's an inherent sort of part of their character that wants to die. And here we have that. We have she's lost everything already. She doesn't want the baby really. In in many ways, if we're being ultra harsh, perhaps she'd be better off or in her own sort of mind not being here. And we yeah, that may, we may not believe that. We may. But that is an out that the viewer is given. And you see that time and time again. And the most jarring on-screen deaths are where the character hasn't been given an out in our mind's eye. And they either work really well or they work really badly. And uh, Mars, we'll not talk about that anymore because we've, we've all seen it. And, um, <laughs> you know, we, 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 could, we could discuss that till the cows come home. But, um, but what I would say is I completely agree um, with you, Gav, that the, the, the film had to end like this because otherwise it would be absolutely 100% disposable horror film. You'd have watched it and you'd have forgotten it. And you'd just say, 
oh yeah, that film where some crazy woman attacks that woman and she kills her. And that's, you know, that would have been it. Whereas this film, because of, because of the, uh, uh, what, what, what happens in the last uh, 15, and I have to say, it's very rare that I, I'm watching a film through my fingers in this day and age, but my, my son's 18 years old. And we watched this together and I turned to him and said, I'm not sure, I, I know what's going to happen here, son, I'm not sure I can watch this. Can you just describe it to me? And, uh, you know, and that, that I would say is to the film's credit. You did say you've not, you don't see much now that shocks you or surprises him. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it was a pleasant surprise in, in, the, in the worst possible way. It was a pleasant surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, she crosses the one line you should never cross. She kills the cat. Oh, well, yeah, any animal. You know, yeah. you know it, it, as, as soon as you kill the pet, that's that's when you, you know. Yeah. I was glad she got her face burnt off with a, a an ant spray or whatever it was. <laughs> the, the toaster was the worst for me. It was the clang when the toaster hits her in the face. <laughs> I think because there's a little bit of hope before that, she seems to be getting on top of her, and you don't see the toaster come out. Well, I know did she to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> But I also would say surround the sound speakers and that toaster is quite the thing. <laughs> Listen, come Christmas Day, the exact same scene will happen in Scrooge and you will laugh so hard. <laughs> it is. It's brilliant in Scrooge. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to watch it in the same way, I don't think. <laughs> uh, my final chapter is uh, Feminism Rules because it's one of the rarities... In not only is there a female antagonist, but you know it's a female antagonist from the start. Because what we often get in films, and I'm, I'm probably going to drop a few spoilers in here as well, but what we often get in films where it is a female antagonist, we don't realise it's them doing the killing when the film starts. We know very early on the person who's murdering people and who's trying to kill her and who's trying to get her baby. So like we see in, um, well, perhaps the most, the most, famous one being Pamela Voorhees, sort of we don't know if it's Jason's mother until right at the end of the first one because we think it's Jason. And then talking French films, sort of switchblade romance, I tension that the the twist is, oh, it was her friend all along that's actually doing it. And then all the boys love Mandy Lane. We've got that twist. I'm not saying there isn't any, but it's very rare that we've got that female antagonist who is just out there doing the killing. And I, I, I loved it for that reason. That, that kind of, we've got a final girl, for one of the who, who's also a bit kick ass. And she, she said, and he said, considering she's, she's going through labour, she more than uh, fights her own corner for a lot of the film. But the fact that we've got that female villain who is unapolog- unapologetically a female villain, and we talked about the uh, victim of Rosemary's baby. She like we've got two characters that are the complete antithesis of that. They're two real kick-ass, full-on, sort of mentally and physically strong people. And I just think it's rare. And I, I I quite enjoyed that. I don't think we've got enough. I, I'm, I'm starting to petition you, I think. I want more female female villains that we know are female from the start. And I think for me as well, and because I'm of, of a certain age. And uh, I had the uh, Bay Blue poster on my university wall, and you know, kind of a, <laughs> like to watch French films to give myself a certain level of panache, to use Ben's word. Uh, <laughs> to then see Beatrice Allen, a very, you know, exact same level of grace and style she has in all her other films, but just relentless 
monster of a woman, and it's fantastic. It really is well done. The fact that all the strong characters are female. They're the only fleshed out characters as well. And well, same Beatrice Dow's character isn't really fleshed out at all. <laughs> but you know quite a lot about her just within the her actions and everything. It really is, yeah, fantastically well done how those female characters are shown. And female characters in horror films often get fairly rough ride of it. Yeah, and, and I think that's one of its strengths too. It's well written. And I think the, the directors and the writers, they said they wanted a female protagonist before they had any of the other ideas. It was going to be a, a female protagonist and antagonist. And that was where the idea starts. Yeah, I think it works fantastic. I know you said like, so the way that she looks and this kind of darkness about the dressed all in black and those big long sleeves that she uses white things in and put her hands in. And she's, she's kind of dark and mysterious from the start and almost again, drawing on the almost witch-like. She's almost got that kind of quality about that. Like she's not just a woman. She's almost like a force of darkness. I, I, I think it's superb. I loved it. She's convincing the whole way through as well. Cause you don't, you don't think about her sex. You don't think about the fact she's a woman. You just, you just know she's the baddie as well, which, you know, you think about, the, the horror, I mean, you've mentioned some of these already. You think about the horror films where the big reveal has been, oh my God, it's been a woman. So, you know, I'm thinking one of my favorite horror sequels is Scream 2. So it ends up being Billy Loomis's mom, Debbie Salt, who's one of the, the two killers. And uh, sorry, spoilers for Scream 2 there. Um, and uh, in, in the faculty, another another uh, film by the same writer, they're sort of the, the big alien is, is, is the young girl that you would never have suspected. And they play on that point of, well, it can't really possibly be these women because. They can't possibly be killers. Whereas here, you know, I'm utterly convinced right from the beginning that yeah, yeah, she's awful and she's doing these awful things because it's happening right in front of me. But it doesn't seem like a stretch of the imagination to think that her as a character could do it. She utterly embodies the awful psychotic woman that she is, and that's you know to the actor's credit, to the writer's credit, to the director's credit. It's no, it's um, very good stuff. It's very in, in French an awful way as well. In a, in a bizarre way, as somebody who watched a lot of non-French horror films, it's very French. It looks hmm. like French art house cinema. It feels like French art house cinema. The sound production is like French art house cinema almost. The only thing that's different is there are people being stabbed in the head almost continually with scissors. And it, it's got Beatrice Darling, who's, you know, about as French as an actress as you could... Absolutely, and the, the, the queen of French art of cinema of the late 80s. Yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic, and the, I like some French horror films, like I say, in Paul Tension and uh, and others I really dislike massively. <laughs> but uh, that, that French, that Frenchness to it, it's a bit like uh, the Gaspar Noé film Irreversible as well, in terms of just the unremitting horror. And that's not a horror film, really, but it's a horrific film as well. I was going to say, it's a horror film, it, it, the most horrific film that you can... It's horrible. Yeah, even yes. though it's not a horror film. Well, you know, I, I think there's an argument about whether or not there is a horror film, I suppose, but uh, that's for another episode. <laughs> Um, while we're talking of, of horror and horrible, I will say in this film, very much of its time, the CGI for the baby, it's, it's not convincing anybody, is it? <laughs> so it's very much 
in it. Well, it's the about two thousand CGI about it. It's a bit lawnmower man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we seem to come quite the way. I'm, I'm not a massive fan of CGI anyway, you know, sort of overly used. But we seem to come quite a long way. And then for some reason, something happened in the 2000s and everyone convinced that CGI was good because all the CGI, when you look back, all looks like that. And you go, that's shit. That's absolutely horrific. And no matter what you watch back now from that period, it's all got that same level of CGI in it. So, yeah, that was... a. Uh, there's so many good practical effects in that film as well that I don't understand why you use a CGI then. It's full of fantastic practical effects. And then it's, oh, okay. Why, why, when really, if they'd done that as a practical effect, that really would have been the nail that would smash it into the coffin. Yeah, this is a truly horrific film. And it takes you away from it, doesn't it? It takes you away from it at the point you can't be taken away from it. Yeah, and... I don't know if it's the same as the um, the sound effect. He paid for the CGI for the start, so we might as well use it a couple of times over the film now that we've, we've got it here. It's shaking a shaking I honestly, a baby about. I think it comes from the mistaken assumption that we care about the baby, and I know that sounds horrible, <laughs> but, but just at, you know, for many, for like 20 minutes of the film, she might as well not be pregnant, you know, in, in, in the most sort of vital 20 minutes. I honestly don't think the, the viewer, really, the casual viewer, or even the invested viewer like ourselves, are really that bothered. Because you know her fate and the baby's fate are tied together. Yeah. So let's just be more interested in her fate. As you say, cutting away to see Lawnmower Man in a in a uterus is not gonna add to my enjoyment of, of, of you know of the film. It's um yeah. you know, it's it's just it doesn't do it for me. Yeah, not until the twist at the end do we go, okay. So the, Yeah, that's okay. fair enough. Yeah, but, yeah, but so at yeah. the point where we see the, the numerous shots of the CGI baby, it is a yeah. point that's putting them in there. Um, and I think that just about covers everything for me, unless there's anything else anyone else wants to bring up. Oh. Ben? Uh, no, I think we've caught it. I think we've uh, happily or unhappily been through everything there. <laughs> so, um, We'll end it there for our two films. Ben, we'll we'll throw back to you in a second to make a judgment. I, I don't think it's going to be a shock or a surprise where you're going to go, but um, we'll come back to you in a second. Before we do, I think it's quite a, a small topic, subject. Is there any films that we've particularly missed out on the uh, the pregnancy or birth? That uh, I had two others I was considering, uh, and uh, one of those was David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, which... You know, is it about pregnancy or is it about doctors? I might, uh, if we do an episode about the doctors, and I might bring it up then. And I think that's, uh, it's a body horror film. It's, re- but it's more about the doctors themselves and the twins. But I think, you know, that's a really horrific film, an unsettling film about pregnancy. And the other, I almost picked just because it's one of the worst films I've ever seen. And I can remember watching it on a VHS in the mid 80s is Demon Seed with Julie Christie. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fair reaction, Ben. Uh, Where the computer house tries to get uh, Julie Christie pregnant. And even as a 14-year-old in the Welsh Valleys, I was happy with my friend going, this is ridiculous. (laughs) But I almost picked that just out of sheer uh, obtuseness, I think. What about yourself, Steph? Uh, uh, were there any uh, bubbling unders for you? 
No, I was fairly set on this, especially after you said I'd done like gore. And I thought, well, if there's one film that's very gory that might turn him and enjoy, well, this was the one. So, I, yeah, I had my mindset. It's one of those ones. I said, um, I watched it. I'm trying to think if my, my son was born or it was due to be born. But it was very much around the time with your pregnancy and birthing was was very much at the forefront of my mind. So it's one that's definitely stuck with me. So as soon as we agreed on the, the topic, I was like, right, I know exactly what mine's going to be. So if I'm honest, I didn't really give much else a thought. I thought it was superb. Though. As somebody who doesn't like go, it's superbly well done. It's the right length. It, it's everything it needs to be. It doesn't need to be anything else. Hmm. And, and I was really good. And it, and I think it, it was surprisingly good for me. What about yourself, Ben? Any other pregnancy or birth-related films that come to mind? There's a few, actually. I saw a horrific film in 2014 called Devil's Dew, which is a oh, yeah. it, it's a, a kind of a Rosemary's Baby rip-off, sort of reimagined about this couple that um, they're on some sort of exotic island and a cab driver takes them to a funny club where she clearly gets impregnated by the devil's seed. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's forgettable, as I completely forgot it when I was doing research for this podcast. I had to look it up and think, oh, yeah, I've seen that. But, um, but, but yeah, that's it's, it's which worth bringing to the conversation. Um, other films, that, that, that there's a little bit of a, a sort of tentativeness comes into this, but The Hand That Rocks the Cradle is a, is a cracking thriller from the 1990s about... Uh, a woman who's um, who, who loses a baby at the hands of a, of a doctor and then blames him and then goes after their family and uh, the wife of the doctor is also pregnant. And if you've not seen that film, it's uh, it's it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, a Quiet Place features a, a pregnancy scene that uh, cool. once seen, never forgotten. Um, obviously, I I am a male and my, my wife has given birth to, to, to both my children um, and I was there at the time. And the uh, idea of doing that in complete silence fills me with as much horror as uh, as both of these films have tonight, frankly. Um, other I ones know, in uh, passing. Tom Cruise insists on it, apparently, so... Oh, well, well, yeah. And luckily, I'm not married to him, so it's... Well, that's, that's again, <laughs> one of the most horrific things is the thought of being married to Tom Cruise, I think, so... I can't imagine Tom Cruise I'd get in early for the time in Middlesbrough, to be honest. But you could take him out for a palm well, well, if, if Tom Cruise was up in Middlesbrough. I could do... Yeah, yes, we, we could head down to Club, Club Bongo. Um, yeah, and he'd, 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 be, he'd be fine. He'd fit in really well. Um, He's had a one cocktail I'll... maker, so... Well, yeah, we don't, we don't do that up here. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, you're going to get a black eye if you try to make a cocktail. Um, so, so, yeah, other things I'd mentioned in passing are um, Village of the Damned, another John Carpenter effort, but obviously the better version is not Carpenter. Uh, there is an, the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, sequel, the fifth one, is, is all featured around a, um, a, a pregnant uh, woman. I seem to remember vaguely. I, it's a long time since I've seen it. The Dream Child, I think it's called or something. Yeah. Um, and obviously the last thing I'll say, the most obvious one, the, the, the cliched effort is the, the, the alien films. You know, the, 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 the film scholars out there will have you believe it's all about male pregnancy and the like. But um, we'll, not, we'll not delve down that particular path. But, you know, it's all about... You know, sort of things bursting out of people. So you know, I imagine we all talk about at least one of the Alien franchise in one of the episodes. I, yeah. I'm a massive fan, and uh, I you think save it for lots them. of horror very well. And obviously, yeah. Donny comes to the, the same horrific end. 
<laughs> Lucky it's not at the pair of scissors, but I was going to say there are less scissors involved, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, the sound production is equally unpleasant, though. <laughs> so, Ben, I suppose that's all that's left is for you to, to cast your, your judgment over which film you enjoyed the most. It, you know, genuinely, this is hard, and, I, and I'm not saying that to placate either of you because <laughs> I, I, I know I genuinely, I'm not, I like to judge a film on what I think the film set out to achieve and the filmmakers. And, um, you know, Rosemary's Baby, it, it's a masterpiece, it's a classic. And, um, you know, it turns, you know, what could have in the hands of a, of a, of a, a lesser director, of a lesser director of photography, or, you know, of all the, the crew that were behind it, it turns it into something that's incredibly watchable. Um, for, you know, to repeat myself for like the 18th time for a horror film that has no horror in it. Um, it's a haunting film. It, it, that urban horror nature of it is it's incredible but then you know inside it's a shocker and it, it that's what it was meant to be and it's meant to you know it, it's a relentless sort of uh, gore flick that you know is one of those few films in the in the in the, the subgenre that gets you invested in what you're watching and it gets you uh wanting things to happen and watching through your fingers when bad things happen it's uncompromising, you know, so many films where you think, yeah, they wanted to do X, but they didn't, did they? They did Y instead. And you watch this and you think, no, they've done exactly what they said they were going to do in the script. And <laughs> Gordon Bennett were left with the results. Um, so it's really, I mean, I am, I am going to, I am going to give it the Rosemary Survey. I have to, but it's, you know, there's a cigarette paper between the two in terms of what they were trying to achieve. I, I rated them both eight out of 10. Um, I, you know, I've Rosemary's baby. I've had, slight issues with in terms of say the length and the edit it's 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 brilliant but i don't rate films all against the same judgment call i rate them for what i think they were trying to achieve you know you can't compare transformers to lawrence of arabia on the same scale you've got to give it credit for what it's trying to do and i would say that with the same here but but you know stepping back being objective which is the better film then it's rosemary's baby so that's my my judgment call yeah I've got to agree. As much as I put inside forward, it's a classic for a reason. You know, it's one of the um, it's one of the best in the horror genre, without a doubt. And so, I knew I was always going to have a, an uphill battle with uh, fighting against Rosemary's Baby. So, I thought I'd go on a different tact at least. But I'm glad you enjoyed it, Ben, because I know it's one of those ones, and I'm glad you enjoyed it as well, Gav, because I know it's not something you would pick up. It's not something you would choose knowing uh, everything about it. So I'm glad you both enjoyed it and had fun with it. I think for me, Inside, I actually enjoyed is the wrong word, but I got more out of Inside watching it than Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby, which I film I knew relatively well and I'd watched a number of times. And Inside is a film that stuck with me at the moment for <laughs> lots of different reasons. Some of them not good. But and <laughs> So if anything's come out of this, I, I might be willing to have a look at some more of those uh, early 2000s French films in a different light, but we'll see We'll see what comes up on the pod as well. <laughs> so that's all that's left is to uh, thank Ben for joining us. Ben, where can, uh, where can people find you? Uh, well, um, first and foremost, I, as you say, I'm co-presenter of two, two um, podcasts, The House of Hammer and uh, Rated H. Uh, and you know you can find me mostly on Twitter at, at, at Ben Taylorson is my hashtag, but you can find me on the two um, uh, podcast hashtags as well. And I just like to say, gentlemen, it's as a, to repeat what I said, it's been an absolute honour and a pleasure 
um, to be part of this. And, uh, you know, I wish you both and the podcast all the success and I'll be listening every episode. Thanks very much, Ben. I've been listening to um, House, of Har- House of Hammer, sorry. Um, I, I didn't know it was there. And then Gav mentioned it and I've started listening. I was like, we definitely need to get Ben on if he's willing to do it. And then uh, I did almost change my mind when I seen your crisp sandwich on a Friday recording. This <laughs> <laughs> I'm That's dra- fair. I'm up to the fair. I'll be glad to avoid uh, any pictures tomorrow. But uh, <laughs> thanks very much again for joining us. Thank you, Gav. And uh, I'll see you again next week or in two weeks' time ready for our Halloween special. So uh, better get picking and choosing and watching ready for uh, ready for then. Well, all I will say on that, I am picking the best of all the Halloween films, and that's all I'm saying. Halloween five. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll leave it there. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks both again. Bye for now. Tara.